0: From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. 44 commercial fishermen died at sea near Kodiak, Alaska in 1988. It is the deadliest fishing year on record. 1988 was also the year fishermen earned $2.40 per pound for sockeye salmon, the highest price ever paid to fishermen for sockeyes, before or since. Commercial fishing proved lucrative but dangerous in 1988. Alaska fishermen know their jobs involve risk. They work on the North Pacific, often in big seas and brutal weather. But no fisherman expects to be murdered by his crewmen. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. If you would like more Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier, I invite you to support this podcast and sign up for the Last Frontier Club. You can find out more about the benefits of the Last Frontier Club and how to sign up in the show notes for this episode. During the summer of 1988, I remember the whispers spreading across the island, first about two missing brothers who were fishermen in Uganic Bay, and later about the mother of those two men discovering their bodies buried in a shallow grave near their fish site. It was the first double homicide in recorded history on Kodiak Island. Uganic Bay, where the murders occurred, is only 30 air miles from where I live, But it's 50 miles by boat, a world away on Kodiak Island. To better help you understand this story, let me provide some background information on commercial fishing, and what it's like to work at a fishing site in a remote bay on Kodiak Island. There are two methods of commercial salmon fishing on Kodiak. Purse seining is done from a fishing boat. A typical purse seine boat measures approximately 42 feet in length, with a cabin, a wheelhouse, a galley, and sleeping quarters. A crew of three or four people live on and fish from the boat all summer. Purse seiners follow the fish. When the captain spots a school of salmon, he orders the crew to make a set. With the aid of a smaller boat, the crew deploys the purse seine, circles the school of fish, and pulls the salmon into the large boat. When the net is stored back on board and the crew secures the smaller boat behind the seine, the captain heads off in search of another school of salmon. Once or twice a day, the captain delivers the catch to a much larger boat called a tender, and the tender delivers its cargo of salmon to the fish processing plant usually once a day. Gill netting, more commonly called set netting, is the second type of commercial salmon fishing. Set net fishermen live on shore. They anchor their nets to the shore on one end and then extend the nets out from shore for a maximum of 900 feet. The nets measure 30 feet deep. Salmon swim into the gill net and get caught in the mesh, and the fishermen pull along the net in an open skiff to pluck the salmon from the mesh. The fishermen hold the salmon on ice, and the tender visits their fish site twice a day for a delivery. Since set net fishermen live on shore and remain there all summer, a set net site often is not only a business, but also a summer home for the entire family. In the summer of 1988, Daniel Nickerson, 42, and his brother Robin, 36, Both, from Bothell, Washington, operated a set net site in Euganic Bay. The Nickersons had fished the site since the 1970s. Daniel's wife and two young sons often joined him at the site. But in 1988, Daniel and Robin hired a crewman from Kodiak named Robert Shepard. Like the Nickerson brothers, Shepard was a Vietnam veteran. The Nickerson brothers had reputations as heavy drinkers, and Daniel reportedly possessed a volatile temper, especially when he was drunk. Other set-netters in Uganic Bay admitted that you do not want to cross Danny Nickerson, especially if he's been drinking. Before the salmon season even began, tempers flared between the Nickersons and their crewmen. They sent Shepard out to the set-net site in Uganic Bay from Kodiak with a boatload of supplies. But when Shepard encountered bad weather and heavy seas, he beached the skiff and waited for help. Several witnesses spotted the Nickersons berating Shepard after the incident, and Shepard's relationship with the Nickersons went downhill from there. On June 22, 1988, friends of Daniel and Robin stopped by the Nickersons' fish site for a visit. They didn't see the Nickersons, but Robert Shepard, the crewman, told the friends that the Nickerson brothers had been drinking all night and were now asleep in their bunks. A few days later, Shepard told these same friends that he had not seen the Nickersons since the morning of June twenty third, when he said the brothers headed out in their skiff to go to a party. The friends worried something had happened to the brothers, and when they found the Nickerson skiff badly damaged and aground, on a beach, they believed their worst fears had been confirmed. Other fishermen in Uganic Bay assumed the Nickersons got drunk, fell out of their skiff, and drowned. On June 29, the Coast Guard and the Alaska State Troopers launched an intensive search for the brothers, but they suspended the search in mid-July when no further trace of the brothers materialized. Soon after the Nickerson brothers were reported missing, their mother traveled from her home in Washington State to stay at their site and take charge of the fishing operation. Robert Shepherd also stayed at the site and continued to fish the Nickerson's gear. Mrs. Nickerson believed her sons had too much boating experience to both fall overboard and drown and she told other fishermen in the bay she did not think her sons had accidentally disappeared, but felt certain they had met with foul play. Mrs. Nickerson dismissed Shepard and hired a young couple to help her run the fish site. In early August, she told a visitor to the site she noticed some of the rocks from the banya had been moved to a grassy ravine behind the cabin. The man investigated and found the bodies of Daniel and Robin Nickerson, bundled in a sleeping bag and buried beneath the rocks. Mrs. Nickerson contacted the troopers, and on August 9, 1988, the Alaska State Troopers removed the bodies of the Nickerson brothers from the fish site. The troopers noted both men had been shot, and when the troopers sprayed the inside of the set net cabin with luminol, the floors and walls glowed, evidence of a recent bloody battle inside the cabin. The troopers confronted Ron Shepard, the only other person known to have been at the cabin before the brothers disappeared, and Shepard admitted he killed Daniel and Robin Nickerson. But he claimed he acted in self-defense. Let me take a short break from the story. The Puzzle Game Best Fiends is a sponsor for this podcast, and I would like to say thank you to them and tell you a little about the game. Those of you who have been listening to my podcast for a while know how much I enjoy this game. It makes me laugh, sigh, scream, and holler, depending on whether I'm winning or losing. Most importantly, though, whether I need a break from work From my stories of true crime, or just from this crazy world, Best Fiends provides an instant way to disconnect and de-stress for a few minutes. Its bright colors and adorable insect characters make me smile, but it's the challenging puzzles that keep me hooked on the game. I just started level 176, and I am now facing slime bombs that coat everything with slime, unless I destroy the bombs before they can explode. My husband is nearly 100 levels ahead of me, and from listening to him, I know I will soon face many new challenges. Give Best Fiends a try and take a break from reality for a few minutes. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends Free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The prosecution argued that if Ron Shepard shot Daniel and Robin Nickerson in self-defense... Why did he concoct such an elaborate cover-up? Why did he deliberately damage the Nickerson's boat and beach it and tell the Nickerson's friends that Daniel and Robin set out by skiff for a party and hadn't been heard from since? Why did he bury their bodies, clean up the scene, and tell everyone, including the Coast Guard, the Troopers, and Mrs. Nickerson, that he had no idea what had happened to Daniel and Robin? If the murders were self-defense, why didn't Ron Shepard contact the troopers and report what had happened? Ron Shepard took the stand in his own defense. He claimed Daniel and Robin Nickerson were extremely violent and unstable. He said Daniel always carried a gun and enjoyed using it to frighten and shoot at people. According to Shepard, on the morning of June 23, while the brothers were passed out drunk, he took their skiff to work the nets. Shepard said when he returned to the cabin, Daniel confronted him and yelled at him for taking the skiff without permission. Shepard said Daniel then pulled a pistol and told Robin to move out of the way so he could get a clear shot at Shepard. Shepard said he grabbed Robin and used him as a shield between himself and Daniel. Shepard backed into his bedroom, released Robin, grabbed his rifle, and shot Daniel once, killing him. According to Shepherd, Robin then lunged at him with a knife, and Shepherd shot Robin in the shoulder. Shepherd said he then went for a towel and water to treat Robin's wounds, but Robin grabbed a shotgun. When the two men struggled over the gun, it discharged, the bullet killing Robin instantly. Shepard's attorney presented physical evidence and expert testimony to back up the details of Shepard's story. But this evidence failed to explain why Shepard covered up the murders and buried the bodies. According to Shepard, he covered up his crime not out of guilt, but because he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, Shepard said when he was a Marine in Vietnam, he was confined for several weeks to the Marine Brig at Da Nang, where, he claimed, he was brutally mistreated, including one incident when he was sexually assaulted with a nightstick by a guard. This mistreatment by authorities, he said, left him distrustful of police. He said that his violent encounter with the Nickersons and the shooting brought back the trauma from Vietnam. And once he had killed the Nickerson brothers, all he wanted to do was return his life to normal as quickly as possible. He believed the police would not listen to his side of the story and would arrest and attack him if he tried to report the incident. Shepard's attorney hoped to call Dr. Raymond Skirfield to testify. Dr. Skirfield was one of the leading experts in the country on the psychiatric symptoms and treatment of of PTSD. But since Scherfield had never treated Shepard, the judge did not allow the doctor to testify. Dr. Robert Alberts, a psychiatrist from Anchorage who had treated Shepard for PTSD, was allowed to testify. Dr. Alberts stated he had diagnosed Robert Shepard with PTSD and explained that PTSD is a recognized form of anxiety disorder experienced by some people who are exposed to extremely traumatic events, such as military combat. The effects of PTSD can last for years, and even after remaining dormant for long periods, PTSD may be retriggered by the occurrence of another traumatic incident. According to Alberts, people suffering from PTSD often avoid and distrust authority figures. He said Shepard's behavior after he shot the Nickerson brothers was consistent with what a PTSD victim who had acted in self-defense might do. The prosecution called Dr. Francis Criswell, a forensic psychiatrist with the Alaska Psychiatric Institute, to the stand. Criswell testified he had treated several veterans who suffered from PTSD, and he said the condition is difficult to diagnose because the diagnostic category of PTSD is so broad. He said it is nearly impossible to prove whether or not an individual suffers from the disorder. Furthermore, Criswell said he believed PTSD had become a fad in legal defenses, and he thought psychiatric professionals such as Dr. Alberts, who did not often work with criminal defendants, proved gullible and easily swayed by a defendant who claimed he committed a crime because of a PTSD flashback. Criswell said he evaluated Shepard before the trial and was not convinced Shepard suffered from PTSD. After Criswell finished testifying, Shepard's attorney again requested that Dr. Scurfield, a leading expert in PTSD diagnosis and treatment, be allowed to testify but the judge denied his request. The judge handed the case to the jury, and to the surprise of many Kodiak residents, the jury acquitted Shepherd of all charges related to the death of Daniel Nickerson. In the death of Robin Nickerson, the jury found Shepard guilty of the lesser included offense of manslaughter. Shepherd was sentenced to 15 years in prison. While many Kodiak residents felt Shepard should be happy to only be convicted of one count of manslaughter, Shepard appealed his conviction, claiming the judge should have allowed Dr. Scherfield, the PTSD expert, to testify. The Court of Appeals of the State of Alaska found in Shepard's favor and reversed his conviction for manslaughter. According to the court, Dr. Skirfield should have been allowed to testify as an expert witness because the jury could have found Skirfield's description of PTSD more helpful than the description given by Dr. Albert's. Furthermore, Skirfield had more expertise than Albert's in dealing with Vietnam veterans who suffered from PTSD, so the jury may have deemed his views more credible than Albert's. Rather than retry Shepard, the state allowed Shepard to plead guilty to criminally negligent homicide and covering up the crime. Shepard was credited with four and one-half years he had already served and was released from prison on 10 years probation in August 1993. Shepard quit drinking while in prison and earned a college degree. He later said the years he spent in prison were the best of his life. He now lives in eastern Washington. Many Kodiak residents believe Shepard got away with murder. I think this case highlights how difficult it is to convict someone of a serious crime in an isolated setting, where there are no witnesses, there's plenty of time to clean up the crime scene, and there's no one to dispute the defendant's versions of the events preceding the crime. I can remember wondering why Shepard simply did not wait the bodies and dump them at sea, where they never would have been discovered. In most ways, 1989 was an excellent time to be a commercial fisherman on Kodiak Island. Salmon prices exploded, and most salmon fishermen made a great deal of money. More than they ever made in a single season, before or since. No one could foresee the disaster lurking on the horizon. In March 1989, the fuel tanker Exxon Valdez hit Bly Reef in Prince William Sound, and wind and ocean currents carried oil all the way to the waters around Kodiak Island. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game closed commercial salmon fishing around the island for the summer of 1989, because they feared the salmon would be contaminated by the oil. Salmon prices still have not rebounded to what they were in 1988. I mentioned earlier that this was the first double homicide ever recorded on Kodiak Island. The second double homicide on the island occurred in 2012, when two men were murdered on the U.S. Coast Guard base near the town of Kodiak. Thank you for listening. You can find sources for this podcast in the show notes. You can also find the link to sign up for my monthly newsletter, read about my novels, and learn more about the Last Frontier Club in the show notes. I'll be back soon with another episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.